This episode is brought to you by Fully Gemstones. Mary had access uh, to an artist, Hans Ewers, great kind of technical skill, but apparently Philip, on meeting Mary, was said to have cursed the flattery of portrait painters. When Anne Boleyn was created Marquess of Pembroke in 1532, the Venetian ambassador commented that she was completely covered with the most costly jewels. So again, this really serves to emphasise the impact that these jewels had on creating this image of magnificence. Welcome to If Jewels Could Talk. I'm Carol Walton, the voice of jewellery, an author, broadcaster, and the woman who initiated the role of jewellery editor at magazines like Tatler and British Vogue. This is a podcast for everyone, for people who do like jewellery, for people who don't realise they like jewellery, and anyone intrigued by fascinating facts, new ideas, and forgotten histories. So please join me as I tell sparkly tales, meeting all sorts of people, delving into four centuries of jewellery culture and investigate what's happening now. Today we are talking about the Tudors, power and portrait jewels. And in the course of it, we're going to discover which of Henry VIII's wives had the greatest jewellery collection. So I'm really delighted to be joined today by Dr Charlotte Bolland, the Senior Curator of 16th Century Collections and Research at the National Portrait Gallery. Hello, thank you so much for having me. And Dr Nicola Tallis, an author and historian whose PhD thesis is titled All the Queen's Jewels, 1445 to 1548, and will be published next spring. Thank you very much for joining us today. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, Carol. We're going to be talking about several portraits in the National Portrait Gallery, so anyone not in the UK can look online. Anyone in the UK can see them when the National Portrait Gallery reopens in 2023 after a major revamp, or they're in an exhibition the Tudors, Passion, Power and Politics at the Holborn Museum in Bath until May 2022, or the Walker Art Gallery, Liverpool, from May until the end of August. Charlotte, first of all, I think we're all always aware that the Tudors are one of the most popular royal dynasties. And we do suffer, particularly in this country, from what I'd call Tudor mania. Do you think that's because we feel through their portraits that we know them so well. So do you think the artworks are responsible for our reaction to the Tudors? Yes, I really do think that's the case, that I think portraiture has an incredibly kind of um, powerful role in this way of sustaining the Tudors in the kind of nation's kind of cultural memory. And um, it's something really striking at the National Portrait Gallery that the earliest painting in our collection is the 1505 portrait of Henry VII. And it's really with the Tudors that sort of independent panel painted portraiture, as we're kind of familiar with it today, really begins and um, takes off in an English um, context. And so they are the first dynasty for whom we have these kinds of um, images that are then so, feel so relatable that you feel that you can really have that kind of encounter with them as an individual, which is something that is, um, isn't really possible for their predecessors. And it's something that they deliberately took advantage of, that Henry VII kind of uh, employed an artist to paint portraits of his family to then send to Spain, send to Scotland as part of um, dynastic negotiations. And then from Henry VIII onwards, it kind of took off and you can really see the sort of um, success of portraiture uh, in England, kind of the juxtaposition of uh, the portrait of Henry VII, which is a small um, little portrait, very portable on panel, to something taken place um, just under a century later, the Ditchley portrait of Elizabeth I, this huge sort of acreage of canvas with um, allegory and poetry and extraordinary dress and extraordinary jewels. And so the kind of way that portraiture has taken off in the English imagination in the 16th century. And Charlotte, do you think that some of this in the 16th century was because so many European portrait artists were travelling to the UK at the time who'd learnt in Italy this skill? 
Yes, very much so. That the kind of one of the greatest early Tudor portraits is by the Florentine sculptor Pietro Torrigiano, that is Henry VII's tomb monument in Westminster Abbey. Um, and he is the um, famous artist who uh, broke Michelangelo's nose. And he came to uh, England uh, to make his career and um, because of the rumoured wealth of the uh, English court. And then the other kind of key uh, moment of exchange is with the Netherlands. Um, and the Low Countries are where artists are really um, developing work in oil um, and the skills of portraiture. So it's Netherlandish artists that have um, the kind of a huge impact uh, in England. And there's lots of migration um, to and fro across the channel. And then particularly due to all the kind of re religious upheaval of the 16th century, that there are these kind of currents of migration and particularly many Protestants coming to England in the second half of the 16th century, that you can really see that kind of expansion in portraiture partly fueled by that. And then, of course, the kind of most famous migrant in the kind of context of Tudor portraiture is the German artist, Hans Holbein the Younger, who has the kind of his, his impact can't be underestimated. And sort of uh, English art history is often thought of as sort of Holbein and then Van Dyck and a sort of, bit of a gap in the middle. Um, but there is many interesting stories to tell in that gap in the middle. But Holbein undoubtedly is the key figure. So he was the key figure in portraying Tudor nobility. Mm. And he offered, I think, the Tudors a kind of a new opportunity to portray themselves in this way, that coming um, first to England uh, through the networks of friendship that connected Thomas More and, and Erasmus, and then painting Thomas More and his family, and through him then meeting um, the king and receiving the king's patronage, that, um, of course, at this point, kind of artists were multitaskers. So where we think of him as a portraitist, that's what we kind of has the most resonance today, that he was also a designer of um, jewellery, as I'm sure we'll talk about later, and extraordinary entertainments and interiors. So a kind of multi-skilled um, artist to come and work for the king's court. But it's not until the questions of Henry's marriages that Holborn actually gets that role of being the king's portraitist to produce the images of Jane Seymour and then kind of hunting for a new wife uh, across Europe. But um, I think Susan Foister, who's the great um, expert on uh, Holbein in England, um, estimated, I think it's about something like a fifth of the aristocracy had their portraits painted um, by Holbein. And this is a trend that happens throughout kind of portraiture in English history, that there's one artist who then everybody wants to have. Because it's a fashion, um, it, it becomes a fashion. Exactly. And so um, suddenly this kind of great uh, expansion. And so because of his popularity and success and also the his style of painting, that suddenly not only do we have these images of, of the king, but his court, and not only um, the highest members of the aristocracy, people like the um, Thomas Howard, Duke of Norfolk, but also some of um, Holbein's peers, that he paints a number of smaller portraits of um, uh, people in livery uniform, um, so other members of the royal household. So you get this kind of slight glimpse of a kind of, of a cross-section of uh, Tudor society within the royal court. Um, but that is something, again, that's kind of really extraordinary that he offers us now. And so patronage was key for these portrait artists to get accepted by the court. Yes, the royal patronage offered the particularly useful um, thing because work in the arts in England was tightly regulated by all the kind of guild structures. Um, and as a um, an artist coming from overseas, from the Netherlands or from Germany, it was very difficult to operate within those, except if you were working for the royal court. That then gave you a sort of free pass to act um, independently. So for um, many of the artists that came to England from overseas, that was the way in which you could then um, set yourself up. So as you said, he was a multitasker. I want to ask Nicola, because he did design jewellery, particularly for Anne Boleyn. Can you tell us a little about that? And did those ever appear in the portraits that he painted? Um, the simple answer is we don't really know. Um, probably not, because... Although, as you say, Holbein did design pieces for Anne Boleyn, we don't actually know if any of those pieces went on to be created for her. What we do know is that, I mean, it wasn't unusual for artists and goldsmiths to collaborate with one another. And in 1534, we do know that Holbein was commissioned to work with the King's goldsmith, Cornelius Hayes, on an extremely important commission for Anne Boleyn and Henry VIII. And this was the creation of a magnificent silver cradle that had been ordered in anticipation of the hoped-for male heir that Henry hoped that Anne was carrying at this time. And Holbein, we know, was commissioned to paint 
Adam and Eve on this magnificent silver cradle that was also studded with diamonds and rubies. Um, however, unfortunately, Anne miscarried of that child. So we don't know for sure if any of Holbein's designs appeared um, in Anne's portraits or if they were made, but he certainly worked on other important commissions on her behalf. Are there any designs of the jewellery that he was designing for her? Are any of those still um, visible? Some of Holbein's jewellery designs are still visible and those are on display in the British Museum. Um, But we don't know if any of those were the ones that he created for Anne, frustratingly and unfortunately. I think it's it's, it's sort of this grey area where we know that he worked for Anne and that he was fortunate enough to enjoy her patronage, but we don't know exactly what the outcome of that was in terms of jewellery. So it's quite interesting. He was sort of acting almost like a stylist. He was not only just paying, but he was kind of encouraging what she should wear as well. So do you think he was right, the Tudor stylist? I think that's actually been quite a good way of, <laughs> of terming him. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, monarchs and consorts were, were trendsetters, weren't they? And as Charlotte said, really, where where they led, everyone else at court followed. And, and Holbein was an integral part of that. And what was the role of the goldsmith at court? How important was he as a figure at court? It was a crucial, crucial role. And I mean, the very nature of what a goldsmith was creating suggests luxury, doesn't it? I mean, a goldsmith is working with gold. And by right of that very um, material, that automatically put the goldsmith in a position whereby um, he was going to be given access to the royal court. And jewels and therefore the role of the goldsmith were a vital part of the projection of majesty. And this was particularly important in the 16th century when it was an age when outward display was of the utmost importance. And so goldsmiths came into frequent contact with kings and queens, uh, particularly the six wives of Henry VIII. And again, we can establish their importance from the surviving accounts of um, Anne of Cleves and Catherine Parr, which show that both of them employed a goldsmith. In fact, the same one, a Dutchman called Peter Richardson, um, who was also employed by Jane Seymour. We can see that, you know, that they were in regular and frequent contact with, with queens and, and kings who made regular use of their services. And they were early recyclers, weren't they? Weren't they constantly melting down, recreating, reusing stones? Yes, exactly so. So this was an age of rapidly changing fashions, even between um, the reigns of Catherine of Aragon and Catherine Parr, we can see the the changes in styles, not only in terms of clothes, which are obviously reflected in portraiture, but also in terms of, of their jewellery design as well. You know, say, for example, with during the earlier part of the 16th century, when the fashion was for low cut gowns, you see jewels that were known as squares. So jewels that would be used to line the neckline of these gowns that appear frequently in um, inventories and, and portraits. And then by the time that Catherine Parr had become queen, the fashion was moving more towards higher necklines, which rendered squares redundant. So, yes, it's an age in which um, jewels were frequently um, recycled, melted down and cast into something else. And you see Henry VIII um, doing this quite frequently, where he would have jewels delivered to one of his regular goldsmiths in order to have them recast into whatever took his fancy next. And I think what's important here, Nicola, if you can explain to us, because in so many of the portraits, um, these aren't actually the crown jewels that appear. There is a big difference, isn't there, between sort of the ceremonial jewels and their individual personal items. Yeah, absolutely. So you've got you've got two two main categories of jewels really. Um you've got the royal jewels which were jewels that were owned by the crown and could be worn by the queen or would be worn by the queen in order to help her fulfill her role as consort. Um, So these included the crown jewels that were often um, most regularly used for 
uh, coronations. And they were often used for state occasions, such as the reception of ambassadors, um, basically occasions on which the Queen needed to make an impression. And then you had the jewels that formed a part of her personal property. And these would be the ones that she would have worn on a day-to-day, more regular basis. Um, But it's when we consider that in the 16th century, few people, um, Charlotte will tell me if this is correct or not, but few people would really have sat for their portrait more than once in their lifetime. Quite often you see queens wearing the most magnificent jewels in the royal collection on these occasions. And this is something that we can see in Holbein's portrait of Jane Seymour, for example. She's wearing part of the ceremonial collection that would have been inherited by her predecessors and passed on to her successors. And these were not her own personal property, but pieces that had been gifted to her by Henry in order to help her fulfil her role as consort. So she was dressed right at particular (laughs) banquets and events. (laughs) Yes, she certainly was. I mean, she was wearing some of the most magnificent pieces in the collection. And what's quite interesting is that we then see those pieces or some of those pieces that Jane wears in her uh, portrait by Holbein, that they then appear in the inventories of Catherine Howard and Catherine Parr as well. Do you think in some of the cases, because obviously not with those particular jewels, but in other portraits where they're wearing something personal, do you think that's part of our attraction, that you're really getting a sense of the individual woman and her identity through what she's wearing because it's very personal? I think so and I think that that's part of the reason why we we resonate so much with that famous portrait of Anne Boleyn and the bee necklace and I always say that you know um, a great testament I think to the impact that this piece created is the fact that you can still buy it today (laughs) in the gift shops at the historic royal palaces and the like and I think that's a real testament to um, the the popularity of Anne, of course, but also, you know, the impact that this piece had in creating her image. And I think it was a very proud declaration of, even though the portrait is, is later, it's a very proud declaration of Anne's roots and her heritage and, and the fact that she still, despite her status, identified herself as being a Berlin. So that was what she was intending, do you think? It was quite a powerful statement for her to make. I think so. And it's something that Catherine Parr does later as well, although we don't see it in in portraits, unfortunately. Um, So there is this misconception, I think, that the trend of initial jewels began with Anne Boleyn, but but actually it didn't. It It had appeared in England prior to Anne Boleyn's queenship, And um, although it really sort of peaked in popularity in the 1530s and the 1540s, and we see in Catherine Parr's inventory, for example, that she owned several pieces of initial jewellery. Actually, so did Catherine Howard. Um, But Catherine Parr, what's also interesting is that even when she becomes queen, she still signed her name KP, Catherine the Queen. And I think, again, that's doing something similar to what Anne was trying to do, really, and proclaiming, yes, that she's a queen, but also that she's very proud of her roots and where she'd come from. There'll be a lot of people listening, swinging their little initial pendant, <laughs> not thinking they're being super fashionable and not realising that this has come from the 16th century. <laughs> um, but Charlotte, do you think these portraits were really truthful records of the appearance of a person or was it always exaggerated? Because I wondered about the uh, the painting that you referenced earlier of Henry VII's portrait with the wearing the big golden order of the golden mm-hmm. fleece that was sent to Margaret, Duchess of Savoy, to negotiate a marriage, which didn't happen. So do you think that this he was building up this kind of gallant, chivalrous image of himself and she didn't find it truthful enough. Well, yes, the kind of, in that incredibly pragmatic sort of function of portraits of um, exchange during dynastic um, 
uh, alliances and potential marriage negotiations that um, the kind of parties involved were aware of the, the limitations of portraiture sometime in this. So kind of a portraiture was, exchanging portraits was part of the, the conversation. But um, Henry VII himself, when he was trying to get information about um, the women he was possibly going to marry, asked his ambassadors for comments on what's her breath like, how tall is she, what are her feet like, so to try and get the kind of fuller picture. So these images, when they arrived, were sort of animated in part by the narratives presented by the ambassadors. Um, that, that said, that yes, the um, the portrait that came to England was a, um, a pre-existing image, sort of no... Um, there wasn't much engagement with the process. Um, but another kind of comparative is the um, moment when uh, Louis XII of France marries um, Henry VIII's sister, Mary. And the portrait that he sends of himself is somewhat flattering. It is, um, I think, made at least a decade earlier. And so that is a slight sense of like, ah, oh, right, that choice of image that you are sending over to England. I think uh, you hear a lot of people, this is the thing on Tinder right now, isn't it? <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> add up yeah. to what, what the person is. And in, 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 in the kind of um, English setting, the sort of cruelest um, record is within Mary I and Philip II and their marriage negotiations that uh, Mary had access uh, to an artist, Hans Ewers, great kind of technical skill. And Philip II was able to send um, a portrait by Titian over to um, England. But apparently Philip, on meeting Mary, was said to have cursed the flattery of portrait painters. So this very kind of um, cruel little anecdote that's kind of gone out, that, but that shows some of the, the risks of that mismatch of kind of, of expectations. And there's also something in the kind of style of um, portraits that when the um, portrait by Titian is sent over to England, it comes with this great explanation of how to look at it and this instruction that you have to stand back because the English court was familiar with Holbein's work, this kind of meticulous um, presentation which you could dive into and it seems almost sort of hyper-real. Titian, much more expressive brushstrokes, um, a whole different sort of mentality in paint. And so that in sending that portrait to England, they felt it needed a little cover note of, you know, don't look at this like you look at a Holbein. You have to sort of stand back and it'll resolve and then you'll understand how it works. That's interesting. <laughs> and talking about sort of truthful records, I think... Nicola, you rely on your research um, from actual um, eyewitness accounts, don't you? I think in your in your book you've got um, an amazing account from the Venetian ambassador looking at Catherine of Aragon's jewels. Yeah, that's right. So at the Field of Cloth of Gold in 1520, the Venetian ambas ambassador remarked that Catherine, and I quote, wore a necklace of very large pearls, from which hung a very valuable diamond cross. Her headgear was of black velvet striped with gold llama and powdered with jewels and pearls. And I think this really indicates that not only did ambassadors and contemporaries admire the jewels that were worn by queens in the 16th century, but you know, they also took the time to wrote, to write about them and report them, which is you know, a testimony to the impact they created. And similarly, when Anne Boleyn was created Marquess of Pembroke in 1532, the Venetian ambassador commented that she was completely covered with the most costly jewels. So again, this really serves to emphasise the impact that these jewels had on creating this image of magnificence for these women. And I guess when those were translated into portraits, I wonder, Charlotte, if what were the painting techniques of the time? Because it's pretty hard. You know, diamonds weren't very sparkly at that time. They were very rudimentary cuts that didn't have this sort of brilliant sparkle of modern cuts that we take for granted now. So they could be a little dull, they could be almost come out grey or black looking. And I wondered how were artists creating that sheen of a pearl or the sparkle of a diamond? Well, that's the kind of one of the transformations in skill over the course of the 16th century and very much that impact um, of techniques from the Netherlands because the initial approach is quite literal in a way. And so when depicting gold, you use gold. And so that there's in some of our earlier portraits at the, at the gallery, you'll see that there is kind of gold leaf um, underpinning the depictions uh, of jewels that 
from the Netherlands, um, they brought in the techniques of how you can use lead tin yellow and lead white to build up highlights and the um, depiction of the jewels. And actually, Hans Ueth, a real um, master in that really kind of tight depiction that but gives the sense of the three-dimensionality and the shape um, of the jewels. That there's also, um, which I would, you know, uh, Nick and you would know um, more about me, but the changing fashions in jewels. And so what the artist is trying to depict. And I believe that for some of the um, diamonds that what was actually praised was the kind of luster rather than the brilliance. And so backing them with black foil. So on any Tudor painting, when you see these vast expanses of black jewels, that they're actually all diamonds and that that was the um, kind of the choice in the fashion to have it. But so it suddenly gives you a sense of the... Um, the splendor of quite how much money is being is being worn, um, but so those that shift in techniques and and is always um, sort of uh, evolving. And when you get into the later sixteenth century, the bits that we the sort of information we know most about is in miniature techniques um, and Nicholas Hilliard. And so he's obviously tasked with recreating these jewels in miniature. And that we haven't yet actually fully kind of unpicked um, his full methodology as to how he did it. He kept many of his secrets with him. And Alan Derbyshire at the Victorian Albert Museum has done a lot of research to kind of recreate techniques. But that used, one of the things that he used was a touch of silver leaf on a pearl to make this very three-dimensional and to make that sparkle. And of course, silver leaf over time um, tarnishes. And so often, if you look at a miniature nowadays, they can have this sort of slightly odd frog spawn effect. And that was because they would have all glittered in the light of the pearl when they were um, initially made. But that little touch of silver leaf has now blackened. Do we know who painted the um, Anne Boleyn in her bee necklace? No, that's one of the great sort of portrait frustrations um, of the early period. So it survives in a number of versions of that portrait. And the um, version in the portrait gallery is painted in the late 16th or possibly the early 17th century. And we can know that by dating the wooden panel um, using dendrochronology tree ring uh, dating. So they're all... um, uh, and all the versions of that painting seem to be um, later, from the late 16th century, from the moment when, in Elizabeth's reign, obviously, Anne is sort of rehabilitated, that she is part of the narrative. And there's this great growing interest in the late 16th century in telling history through portraiture. And people are assembling kind of portrait sets in order to kind of plot out the narrative. And so if you're going to talk about Elizabeth, you have to talk about Anne. But of course, in the 1530s, 1540s, Anne is sort of slightly excised from the record. Um, so there is this um, gap in the contemporary knowledge. So it seems, it seems very likely that that portrait is is based on something that is now lost. So we don't have a contemporary painting made during her lifetime. There is always the hope that discoveries are always made in in Tudor art. Uh, So I'm not ruling out that hidden in an attic, hidden in a drawer somewhere, there may be, you know, to keep looking. Um, But at the moment, that kind of most iconic image is in itself a a sort of representation of something from from her reign. So do you think that's why the pearls look so good Mm. now? Because they were painted later? Yeah, so by that point, artists had got um, much more practised at uh, displaying, at painting pearls and the kind of popularity of pearls and the access to pearls and you know in Elizabeth's reign the association of pearls with purity so they become this huge part of her iconography so pearls are everywhere and so artists have really cracked how to do a good pearl by that period. <laughs> and in what you've just said about Anne Boleyn it's quite interesting because as you said her legacy was changing and I wonder when these portraits were being painted how much it was to depict themselves to their contemporaries or to create this legacy that they hoped would last and go down through generations? That I think it's, it's um, a really interesting question because it was such a sort of a new opportunity. And so there are um, certain examples of how people use portraiture being very, very unusual, that there's a fascinating group of portraits of Henry VIII that's related, they're all on wood from the same tree, and they are related to the initial group that Henry VII was commissioning as part of this kind of creating his dynastic um, identity for his family. Because, of course, the Tudors had a bit of work to do to say that they were the right holders of the English crown. There was a bit of um, messaging that needed to be to go out across Europe. But this group of images that were always these, the the panels were clearly created at the sort of same moment with wood from this one tree. They're, they're actually kind of palimpsests that if you look at them using the latest um, scientific techniques, such as macro XRF, that you can see that there are layers built up over time. And at the, the bottom layer is a very young Henry, kind of un- unbearded sort of long hair, And then over time, other Henrys have gone over the top. 
And so what it seems to happen, either you have an artist who keeps on remaking a Henry because he can't sort of sell it and sort of try and get as time goes on, or perhaps this very odd idea of the people who own their Henry kind of coming back to the artists and saying, oh, well, this is a bit out of date. Can you update it now? Which is, you know, sort of baffling by the um, mid-16th century. You just get another portrait. But in that very early days, people are not used to having the sort of possibilities of portraiture and seem to be able to say, oh, actually, can you just, you know, update my painting? I don't need a new painting. I just need to update it. Then by, so it's all kind of in flux that for the um, aristocracy by the kind of mid-16th century, it then becomes part of that sort of um, moment. And so it's often, they're often commissioned to mark when somebody transitions to kind of becoming a member of the Order of the Garter or marriage or some kind of um, appointment. And that's actually one of the the sort of importance of these portraits to marking family history is one of the reasons why so many survive. So for late 16th century art, we have, there's huge gaps. The Reformation resulted in large-scale destruction of all sorts of things, but also just changes in fashion, you know, the kind of the aesthetic of the 17th century, the 18th century, the 19th century. And so bits of Tudor art would look increasingly sort of odd and out of fashion, but not the portraits. You keep your great-grandfather, great-great-grandfather, great-great-great-grandfather as the generations kind of go back. So actually the legacy of these portraits has become kind of the image of Tudor art because they are the thing that survives because because of that family importance. And when we talked about Elizabeth I just now, Nicola, I wanted to ask you, because she really did control her image, particularly through her use of jewellery, by using so many ropes of pearls. She set her image as this, because they were, as we just said, linked with purity. She set her image as the Virgin Queen. Do you think she was the master of propaganda through her jewels? And did that set a template for other royal women to follow? Yeah, absolutely. But I think that I think that she learned that from possibly her stepmother, Catherine Parr. And I think there's been a lot of emphasis on the fact that um Elizabeth may have learned something about the art of queenship from Catherine Parr, but not perhaps about how she learned the art of image creation. I mean, yeah, there are over a hundred, I think there's over a hundred surviving likenesses in images of Elizabeth. Um, and as you said, she was the, the master of propaganda. She greatly controlled the production of her image. But this is something that started earlier with Catherine Parr, I think, who also exploited portraiture in order to create and build her image and really used portraits as a way of um, showcasing her splendour and establishing her authority. And I think this is my view, that this was something that was particularly important for Catherine to do because Henry VIII was busy promoting this image of the Tudor dynasty and the queen that always formed a part of that was Jane Seymour because, of course, she was the mother of the king's heir. So I think that Catherine used her jewels and her portraits as a way of establishing her own authority, which was particularly important for her because she wasn't the mother of the king's heir. And so this is something that, yes, I definitely think that she passed on to Elizabeth. We know from the inventories and um, New Year's gift rolls of Elizabeth's jewels that she, I mean, she had hundreds of thousands of jewels and um, that she loved them in all all shapes, all sizes, all forms. So yes, I definitely think that she was able to use these to project whichever image of queenship she wanted to. And, you know, the the testament of Elizabeth's magnificent jewels comes in the fact that, you know, some of the portraits are named after the jewels as well. So yeah, she was the mistress of creation. She knew exactly what she was doing. She was able to use her portraits and her jewels as a way of doing this. So what image was Catherine Parr particularly wanting to get across? Was it the identity that she was the ultimate queen after all these previous queens? Or was it her virtuous nature? Because I think you you referenced that she used a lot of crosses as a sense of her piety. Um, She does do that. But I think that a, a theme that we see that 
matters to Catherine a lot is majesty and royalty. So we see that a lot in her jewellery design. Um, there are uh, several pieces listed in her inventory um, that reflect this. So for example, there was a brooch that depicted both Catherine and Henry um, surmounted in diamonds. There was another brooch which had an image of a king um, and then we see in the magnificent portrait by Master John, which is in the gallery, of course, um, which was probably painted at the height of Catherine's queenship while she was regent of England in 1544. And we see that she's wearing this magnificent crown brooch. And this was probably commissioned on Catherine's orders. Um, we don't know for sure, but it doesn't appear in previous inventories. So it probably was commissioned by Catherine. Um, and again, this is, this is a real reflection, I think, of the importance that she places on majesty and really wanting to project herself as this powerful queen. And what's interesting with that piece, just to say quickly, is that um, we know exactly what happened to it because that crown brooch was later inherited by Elizabeth, interestingly, where it's recorded in her jewel inventory of 1587. And it later passed on to Elizabeth's successor, Anne of Denmark, who very sadly, in this reflection again of changing fashions, had it melted down, presumably because it had become unfashionable by this time. So you referred there to some of the jewels um, actually having specific names. Was it important in that era that these jewels particularly took a name? You don't see it happening all the time. It's something that happens when a jewel is either particularly valuable or particularly important. So um, in the 16th century, we see the Mirror of Naples, which was a wedding gift from Louis Twelfth to his bride, Mary Tudor. We also see the, the Lennox jewel, which was commissioned by Henry VIII's niece, Lady Margaret Douglas, later in the century. And then there's also the Great Harry, which belonged to Mary, Queen of Scots. So those are some of the notable 16th century examples. And of course, also there is um, the famous pearl, La Peregrina, which has got, uh, <laughs> that's worthy of a podcast episode in its own right, the history of that incredible piece. Yeah, if Jules could talk, that's one that has, <laughs> yes. a, has a good story to land up nestling in the cleavage of Elizabeth Taylor's. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. And apparently, um, I, apparently, um, on one occasion, Richard Burton walked into the room to find their puppy chewing on the pearl. And <laughs> you can just imagine the horror. <laughs> and it survived unscathed. And some of the jewels um, actually had practical roles. I mean, obviously, brooches and, and buttons, uh, fastenings, jeweled fastenings we know about. But can you tell us a little about some of them that um, actually contain practical items? Yes, yeah, so um, there is a piece in the V&A, which is a whistle jewel, which is traditionally the first gift that Henry VIII ever made to Anne Boleyn. And I say traditionally because there isn't actually any um, any real proof of the provenance. And it is a nice tale, but one that rests on, on family tradition. It's fashioned as a whistle and it would have been attached to a masking costume. Um, but it, it does serve as a great example of a piece that was decorative, but also played a functional role because it does also consist of an ear spoon, always handy to have in the 16th century. What was an ear spoon for? <laughs> well, to scoop the wax scoop, out of your so ears. That sort of so. early yeah. ear buds, yes. <laughs> Actually, we should bring those back so people don't use plastic ear buds. I well, think. yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, we, we've, we could learn a lot from the 16th century, I think. <laughs> um, and it also featured two toothpicks as well. So, so that was a, a really great example of, of a, a dual functioning jewel um and again you do you do see pieces like this or similar to this that pop up in in the inventories of queens Catherine Parr for example there was an inventory of her more personal jewels and possessions that was taken after her death in 1548 and something else that I think is quite interesting um, from her inventory is a piece of unicorn horn and so this was a, this would have been believed to protect against poison um, so again there was this 
there was this belief in the 16th century or more pre-Reformation, I should say, that particular stones or particular jewels um, harboured medicinal properties that were believed to, you know, protect the wearer against things. You know, for example, amethysts uh, were supposed to prevent drunkenness. Uh, rubies were signs of marital fidelity. Sapphires were believed to protect, protect against poison. And um, as I say, the, the Reformation really began to cast doubt on these sorts of superstitions. But it's certainly possible, I think, that Catherine Parr believed in some of the magical properties of items, um, which you can see as I say, from the unicorn horn in her jewellery. So um, so that's one, one other example. And I suppose pomanders were quite practical, weren't they? Pomanders were quite practical, yes, exactly. So those were um, encased fragrant herbs and were believed to prevent disease. So you see those again um, right through to the reign of, of Elizabeth and, and perhaps beyond as well. So those were something that were quite popular also little um, little books, prayer books that could be used attached to a girdle. Um, those were quite quite handy. And again, another example of a jewel that was quite decorative because they were often encased in gold and jewels. But again, something that you could just pick up and, and, and use. So portable and decorative. And Charlotte, men's fashions and tastes are depicted quite strongly in, <laughs> in portraits yeah. as well. And I was thinking of sort of swashbuckling Walter Raleigh and Francis Drake. Yes, exactly. They've got um, that the men are very much um, uh, using as many jewels as um, as women, that there's the sort of most uh, literal type of um, uh, wealth in the sense of just enormous gold chains. And so you can really see that in Francis Drake's, the miniature of him by um, uh, Nicholas Hilliard when he come, comes back from his circumnavigation and he's wearing this enormous gold chain um, evocative of the vast amount of wealth that uh, he kind of brought back with him. And Walter Raleigh wore a single pearl earring, didn't he? <laughs> Did he create that fashion? Was it so it wasn't too feminine, but he could make the reference to the pearl? Oh, here I, here I would defer to, to Nicola. I'm not sure. <laughs> yes, in, in my, what do you think, in, yes, yeah. I, I, I'm not 100% sure, actually, I have to say. <laughs> I think that's what we have to think. I think it's yeah. um, um, as a, a, a big, bold, baroque earring. I think there's a big statement there, but he didn't want to be too feminine. Maybe he didn't want to anger Elizabeth that he had better pearls, maybe. <laughs> But when it comes down to it, we, we talk about all these wives and that in some cases they inherit the jewels from Henry or that you can trace it through the inventories. But who, in your opinion, do you think um, had the greatest collection? Because I guess they all wanted to outshine the previous wife. There was an element of competition there. Yeah, I, I definitely think so. And I think in some ways, I suppose... It's, it's a difficult question to answer because there isn't a level playing field in terms of the fact that we don't have surviving portraiture and documentary evidence to, to you know, to establish exactly what each queen had and, and how they wore it. But I would have to say that it's Catherine Parr because... I mean, I think she's I think she's brilliant in any case. And um, her why do you think she's so brilliant? I just think she's been really overlooked and underrated for such a long time and it's sort of been written off really as the wife who survived and depicted as perhaps a kind of nursemaid for Henry. Um, but actually, when you look at her accounts and you really come to study her, she was a woman who was really highly educated but who also took great care of her appearance. So we know that she, in the first year of her reign alone, she ordered 117 pairs of shoes. So, I mean, any woman who can do that, I think, has to earn your admiration, for starters. And <laughs> we also know that she, she, took, um, she took baths in, in milk um, because she thought that it was good for her skin. You know, she was ordering lozenges to sweeten her breath. She she ordered perfume. You know, she cared very greatly about how she looked and um, and and her image. And again, jewels were this were an 
integral part of this. And when you look at her inventories, she loved diamonds. Diamonds seem to be, I mean, who doesn't? But diamonds seem to be the, the most popular stone that feature among her pieces. And, and I guess they were newly fashionable because they were being cut um, in Antwerp, weren't they, at that moment? Yes. And Bruges and being yes. brought over as, as new fashionable cuts. I suppose the rose cut. Yeah, I mean, the table cut diamond was probably the most popular at this time. But yes, the rose cut and the pointed cut were also very popular. And I think, again, um, Catherine just had this real desire to be seen as fashionable. And we can see that in the style of dress in her portraits. But again, also the fact that she is so loaded down with jewels and the care that was taken to to paint these jewels as well I think um and also what's interesting about Catherine I think is that she um she I mentioned she was a very learned woman and she even had her books jeweled so they would be bound in gold and covered in jewels which again another statement of somebody who wants to create an image of a powerful and important woman there for sure um and she was also very interested in clocks again we know that she she commissioned um jewels that featured clocks as well so someone who wanted to be seen at the forefront of everything really i think she was a woman who was very very clever and who knew exactly what she wanted to get from the projection of her image. And you have a great um, example in the gallery, don't you, Charlotte, of of one of her paintings and illustrating the importance of jewellery in portraits because you, it enabled you to reevaluate it. Well, yes, exactly, that um, this beautiful full-length portrait of uh, Catherine Parr and that had spent a lot of its life... Catherine Parr had been sort of associated with it, but then a lot of its life had been called Lady Jane Grey. And part of this was due to a kind of um, a mistake made in the early 17th century. And so as I was saying about that interest in um, telling the story of English history through portraiture, there was this great move to um, create print series so that people could kind of acquire uh, images and the sort of story of Henry's wives was sort of part of that and so artists went around kind of doing research to try and identify the correct portraits in people's collections but they made the mistake the de Pass, um, when they made the image of Lady Jane Grey they used the Catherine Parr portrait so then when sort of subsequent generations down history would sort of go well look in 1620 I think it is this was called Lady Jane Grey so it must be Lady Jane Grey there we go. But there was always this kind of like, or is it Catherine Parr? Or is it Catherine Parr? And then finally, the kind of one um, piece of information to kind of say, right, this is Catherine Parr, was the identification of the jewel that um, Nicola described with the crown. And so then it was able to say that, yes, this is this is Catherine Parr. Um, and uh, that a kind of a magnificent image of, uh, of queenship in the um, level of technical skill in um, the creation of this, the, the sort of interesting impact of um, Holbein because the sort of previous full-length portrait is of Christina of Denmark is the kind of the most famous example that sort of comes uh, to England and there's something about that kind of modelling of new opportunities in portraiture of like oh what a queen should look like and that actually um, during recent conservation treatment looking at it you can see that there's a thin um, strip on the side that's been uh, added at um, at a later point in its history. Um, and so to make it very kind of centralised and very um, kind of much more iconic, like the coronation portrait of um, Elizabeth I, this very kind of triangular sort of image, but that actually the artist originally intended her to be slightly offset and give that impression more of her sort of moving through the space and a much more kind of animated human um, image. And of course, that's the other thing that we have to bear in mind in looking at these, um, looking at paintings from the 16th century, is their sort of long history as objects and conservation history. And so one of the um, things that's often most vulnerable to light exposure or um, abrasion are the red lake glazes that bring in uh, the kind of final sort of warmth and rosiness of the cheeks and life. And in that portrait of Catherine Parr, which has kind of staggering use of materials, the artist took the really unusual decision of using um, azurite, which is sort of uh, really good quality azurite, but across the whole of... Mixed That's sort of lapis lazuli, yeah, isn't it? Yes, that the very colors of blue, blue. really strong blue. And, um, but across the whole of the, the panel as a priming layer mixed in, 
Whereas um, an artist like Holbein, towards the end of um, his second visit in England, is using kind of salmony preparation. So you have that kind of pink starting point for to get the flesh. This has this really cool blue that is the kind of underpinning the portrait of Catherine. So she has this really sort of unusual ethereal um, appearance because the the kind of artistic decision um, made to do that. And so I think really kind of um, heightening her kind of the pallor of her skin. So really interesting to hear about her bathing in milk and that sort of, um, <laughs> you know, kind of deliberate decisions um, made on the, yes, on the part of the patron. I wondered, Nicola, through your research in particular, where portraiture sits in order of importance. I know you go through wills, inventories, documented eyewitness accounts. How important are these portraits? They're absolutely vital because we have to consider that although... We're very fortunate that the V&A and the British Museum have an incredible collection of 16th century jewels. There aren't really any that can be definitively linked to queens in this period. Or sorry, I should say there are obviously that can be linked to Elizabeth I, but not to the wives of Henry VIII. Portraits really give us the visual clues that we lack from having the physical objects themselves. Um, and again, the, the inventories, the wills, the reports, they're all wonderful sources, but portraits are really what we rely on in order to give us a, a, an indication of what these jewels actually look like and show us the way in which they were worn. So they're irreplaceable, really. And I think we're very fortunate to have quite a rich collection of them for queens in this period. Thank you both so much for your expertise and this incredible sharing this knowledge and research with us. Thank you very much, Nicola, for being with oh, us today. Pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. And it was it was lovely and really nice to meet you too, Charlotte. And Charlotte, thank you so much for coming. And you've made me just want to come back immediately. The National Portrait Gallery <laughs> reopens to re-look at all these amazing portraits oh, thank you so much it's been um such an interesting conversation i've learned so much it's really great thank you thank you for listening for more information about this and other episodes of if jules could talk please go to our website carolwilton.com podcasts and if you liked it please share it any way you can And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast feed on any of the usual platforms where you find your podcasts and we'd love a rating and a comment. Join me again in two weeks for the next Jeweled Nugget. I know how much you've missed it and I've missed it too, but Bridgerton is back in all its jeweled splendour. And so I went down to the set so I could report back to if Jules could talk. So I'm going to tell you all about the second season and what to expect. There'll be some spoiler alerts, but please join me then. If Jules Could Talk with Carol Wilton is produced by Natasha Cowan, music and editing by Tim Thornton, graphics by Scott Bentley, illustration by Geordie Labanda, and you can find me on Instagram at Carol Wilton. <laughs>